everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. This month's guest is Graham Irvin. He was recommended to me by Dan Eastman and Bram Riddlebarger. So if you like this episode, you'll like those, and if you liked those, you'll want to stick around. Graham Irvin was born in North Carolina. He currently lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and works at a warehouse in New Jersey. Livermush is his first book. You can follow him on Twitter at Graham J. Irvin, and I'll have a bunch more links in the show notes. Before we get into my conversation with Graham, I will remind you that you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe for two bucks a month. You can get these shows as soon as I'm done editing them. You can also go to paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe to drop a one-time donation, or you can buy my book. It's called Tired, and you can find it on Amazon. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Grant. While I was reading your book, I thought about tweeting, halfway through liver mush, and I'm starting to think this book is only about liver mush. And, uh... <laughs> I mean, yeah. while it's true every single piece is about liver mush i mean it's also a book that's not only about liver mush right like there there's some some pieces in there that like the the one about your mom um and some other stuff near the end that like really stuck out to me is like um i don't know deeper deeper than the sort of on the face of it silly premise about yeah. you know a singular dish of food that seems to be specific to a, a region. Um, yeah. So, so where did the, where did this book come from is a good place to start, I think. Uh, so I, I think it came from a couple different places. Uh, I, before writing this, I was writing a couple other pieces that, that did a lot of like repetitious things. Um, there's like a, a poem on rejection letters, tank museum. That is just that phrase over and over again, tank museum. Mm. There's a couple other things that I, I was writing around the same time that was uh, doing, uh, doing that as well. Just finding a phrase and then writing it a lot. Um, and that is fun uh, to me. It also has a lot of like, I think there's a lot of inherent humor in that, that you can just, you can really take it anywhere. I think that you can just repeat a thing over and over and over again until it either becomes, uh, has deeper meaning or it becomes sad or, you know, will be funny because you create this expectation for it to mean one thing and then it means another thing. Uh, and then also just tweeting about liver mush uh i think that that came from being uh stuck in home in my apartment during covid and thinking about things that i didn't necessarily have access to um and i don't really remember exactly why just like maybe like texting with my family and being like oh man you know i really could go for some liver mush right now and then that being one side of my life that I'm talking to my family and then the other side of my life being just tweeting a bunch and being like, let's combine the two. Uh, and then uh, I think just talking to Zach Smith specifically said, hey, you know, this is 
this could be you could write about this you could write some poems about this um and then once i did have poems i sent them to like a friend group and they were very supportive uh um in a way that made me feel like oh well this could be something that has value outside of just me you know writing things mm. myself right it, that seems like not an uncommon thing uh, within the back patio press sphere. Like, I, that's a kind of a similar story that Dan Eastman told about um, Watertown. Um, and even even though it was published through Clash, that's sort of like a similar uh, story that Zach told about 50 Barn Poems, too. Um, yeah. And I find that interesting. I, I don't know how common that is in the sort of poetry world as a whole like it seems like and and i'm notoriously open about being very bad at poetry um but it seems to me that like the poet writing a collection of poetry does it like very quietly at home you know sort of like somberly um and, and then meekly offers it up to a couple of presses and says please please here you go um, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, it that way of, of of writing it was more attractive to me because I already had like uh, it was kind of like a a green light to do it that made me maybe more excited to keep going mm. um, because I think that there is with any kind of uh, project, there's a lot of times where I can like get into a snag and just be like, well, you know, like this many pages in, I feel like there's too much that I need to do to fix it. And that feels less fun than just kind of like going with something new and then, you know, restarting. Uh, and so having like a, a straightforward thesis at the time, I guess there's a little bit, murkier thesis now of the book but at the time just being like these are all poems or these are it's a book about liver much or whatever made it seem like a little bit easier that it could be uh anything um i also i like i like poetry a lot i i do like poetry i do read poetry but i also find myself drawn more to uh like book books uh, uh, that are have like some kind of conceit uh, 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 theme or whatever mm-hmm. some kind of maybe not a book length poem specifically but something that is like t- tying them all together and and like even if they are just about a certain time period uh man i can't remember her name. uh i'm gonna can i google things is that yeah is not that a test go ahead <laughs> so like <clears throat> Mm, fuck, I can't remember her name. Audrey Lord's like partner uh, was this poet, and it's not showing up. <laughs> uh, Edwin no, Rollins, right? Yeah, not that. Yeah, it, it was a woman. I thought that. Oh, no, oh yeah. I thought that she was married to a woman, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Um. Uh, women's history.org says that he was a gay man so maybe they bearded for each other 
oh shit, I thought that Audrey Lord was a woman. Um, no, Audrey oh, Audrey Lord is a woman. She married okay. a gay man. Okay, okay, okay. All right, so yeah, maybe that makes sense. Uh, damn, all right, well, I can't find it. And I'm Adrian Rich. That's oh, okay. okay. So I don't know how they're connected because I thought that's what that, why they were connected. Maybe they were together at one point. She would write these poetry books and they would be, the theme would just be like, they would always have like a, 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 a subtitle of the years that they were written. And even that was interesting to me, uh, just to say it out loud, to say 75 to 79 and then the title or whatever. Um, so that, that I think, I, I, uh, I think collections of generally, unless I'm rambling a lot, generally a collection of, of stuff for me unless it is tied together, I feel like I get uh, <clears throat> fatigued because each piece has like an emotional thrust and then uh, I have to then restart and, and, and like get back there. But if the thing is tied together by a theme, there's typically like a, an ebb and flow of energy that I think is more exciting. I'm inclined to agree. I, I find that sometimes when I read poetry, um, I get frustrated is maybe a, a correct enough word to say that like as soon as i'm finished reading a poem i've i've immediately forgotten it kind of like as yeah. soon as i'm on to the next one it's just like okay well um and on on the one hand it's kind of like a nice mindfulness practice to just like i'm in the poem now and then now i'm in this poem and now i'm in that one um but it makes it really hard to uh, talk to poets about their poetry sometimes because I'm like, oh, there was a really good, good thing there, uh, yeah. you know. And maybe that means I need to annotate books more, but I, I don't enjoy doing that. I'm I'm open about that too. Um, so like, even though I, that isn't to say that I've memorized every single page of Livermush, but like, you can kind of. I feel like I got um the emotional trajectory of it right like there's especially because there's callbacks um there's poems that are i suppose sequential poems right there's the mark rothko one and then the other mark rothko one immediately after it and um sort of being at war with yourself about the different names for liver mush ad adjacent dishes um that I feel beyond just the the subject matter kind of knitted everything together, right? Like it's not just a silly book um, about a, a dish; it's a collection of thoughts using this as a framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, go ahead. Well, it's funny you uh, talked about like reading a poem and immediately forgetting it. There's a a poet that I I like. I haven't read him in a while. <clears throat> His name is Tan Lin, not Tao Lin. Mm. Tan Lin. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a lot of uh, like conceptual poetry books uh, and things that he didn't really call poetry that would be like about poetry, but then it would be like books about craft, but then he would market it, whatever, how you have to market poetry as poetry. So he'd be like, this is a book about poetry, but it's poems or something. Mm. But uh, one of the things that uh, he talks about in one of his books is that like the perfect poem is a poem that you forget immediately that you mm. kind of like pass through it and uh, and that's it there's nothing like left with you 
because it it just kind of like materializes through you and then it's no more and you've satisfied the the reading process or whatever i think that's really cool uh also uh there's a guy who lives down the street from me or i don't know where he lives he has a uh, bagel uh place down the street from me and he also writes poetry and uh, i was talking to him like last week and he was saying something along the lines of like the difference between poetry and and food is that like a piece of writing lives on like after you and like can be passed around and that mm. you can read it any time but a perfect meal is proven perfect by not existing afterwards you mm. know like you read a book and then or you read a book and then you set the book aside and anybody else can read it. you go back and read it you get maybe different stuff out of it but <clears throat> but it's uh it's still there uh but a perfect bagel is gone you know right and that's how you know it's perfect because you ate it all uh and i i like that idea I'm trying to I, I don't know if that means anything to the book but i liked thinking about those things together right I'd, talking to the i i enjoy thinking about what poetry is for these days um just because it's like as a pre-prose art form right like the poetics had rules so that people could remember what came next right like yeah you have to remember all the rhymes and if it's in this meter it means it's about this sort of thing um and as we developed prose and then like the printing press poetry has morphed into such a different animal completely um that it's tough to know like how tightly it ties on to like its ancestry yeah 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 i don't know um yeah i have <clears throat> i mean i i don't know i, I <clears throat> don't know like what it's for or why like why poetry over something else i think that <clears throat> it is I like that it can really be about anything you, you can kind of do a lot of different stuff in a, in a poem in a very short amount of space and with enough confidence or with enough skill or whatever it can kind of um, do whatever it wants in, in, in a way that maybe you have to there's a lot more work or finesse involved in, in longer pieces or it, a novel can do a lot of different stuff or a short story can do a lot of different stuff they also can do anything sure but i guess you'd have to like have a character that then brings you to some conclusion or you might be more constrained with uh, a prose you know, there has to be somebody narrating it and bringing you somewhere. Whereas, like a poem could be a grocery list. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um. And I like the freedom. I like how how like anarchist it has become. You know, especially um, within the sphere of your your back patio presses and your house of lads. Um. And in some of the Sam Pink stuff, how it like I don't know, like 
the the minimalism of it um like it feels very internet informed um i mean to the point where people do just publish their tweets as poetry um but it's it's just it's interesting to see where it's going because the, the poetry that i tend to read um whenever i do go out and pick up poetry tends to be a little bit older uh like the sort of post beat stuff um which is still like very narrative right like a lot of it is there's a lot of the eye in the poetry and, and things like that so i i think probably what my what my biggest problem is is that i've like a giant missing link of of poetry history context right like i know about like you know beowulf and i know about stuff from the 60s very little and then i know stuff that was written like this year uh and there's there's many many stages i think that i'm missing as well as like a whole global context as well too yeah i mean i guess it, uh <clears throat> the thing that ties it to you know beowulf or uh the odyssey and like homer and stuff like that is that is still maybe prioritizing voice, you know, uh, uh, the Odyssey was like spoken in parts mm-hmm. and, and easier to remember, but it was usually performed out loud. Uh, and I think that like, whether or not it's poetry that's written to sound like talking, which I think a lot of the internet poetry is, is to, to sound like either the way that you talk, like, conversationally or maybe mirroring the way that you talk on the internet mm. or there's also like the opposite of that where it's like focusing on like the weirdness of language uh like language poetry uh is a lot of uh stuff that people don't talk like that but it's making you kind of experience these weird things by uh making like when you read it your brain is trying to piece it together through like how this sounds out loud so it's it's like spoken uh still and then like you know because it's focusing on like the, the, the way that you say the words out loud that, that is a big part of it maybe that's why <laughs> hmm. it could be um your neutral spaces bio says that you got an mfa in 2018 um I- what's that i said i did good um what what was your mfa experience like as a person without one i i i find it uh i like to live vicariously through people who who did end up going and getting one yeah um i don't know it was uh, i felt uh very special getting in uh not all I don't think anyone in my family has ever gotten a grad degree. A lot of people in my family haven't gotten even like went to any kind of college. Like either of my parents went to like community college. Like my mom got like a degree at a community college. My stepdad didn't go anywhere past high school. A lot of people in my family didn't go anywhere past high school. And so not to say didn't go anywhere, but didn't get degree. Right. So it was a big deal in that regard. And it definitely felt like a world that uh, uh, was very strange to be in. Uh, and for a while in it, I felt uh, very excited because I, uh, I, you have this kind of passion 
and you feel like you mostly express that personal, like privately in your own writing time where you read or something, you know, if you have friends, you, unless you have a writing group where you all your friends are writers or whatever, you typically don't talk about it uh, unless you find it on the internet or something like that. But you know, I think a lot of people who are writers are the writer in the friend group. Uh, and then feel kind of lonely because of that. And I, and I, when I first got into the, the grad program, I felt like everybody's a writer and I can like relate to everybody about writing and everything I'm talking about. Everybody is also that. <clears throat> but then I also like, in, in talking to those people, it started to feel like uh, it was even harder to relate to them because of the kind of writing they did or the kind of writing that they wanted to do or, or, or what they read or whatever. So then that became even like this bigger gulf between who I thought were people I related to uh, after spending a little bit of time in it. So it was like uh, maybe a little bit disheartening, uh, I would say. I think that like I went for poetry and um, I think that uh, maybe a positive about poetry in grad school is that they don't really make you think you're going to uh, – get money or become famous or anything like that there's not really you don't get book deals for poetry books you know even if you're getting a you're winning some kind of award and getting published on the gray wolf that would be the goal for a lot of people in grad school but even then you're not making a bunch of money and so i think that that in itself is kind of nice you know like was at least made me able to say I can really do whatever I want to and I don't have to really adhere to these rules. Uh, I think that like maybe, and this might just be my own problem. If you get, go for fiction or nonfiction, there is a, there's a path for you that, that uh, really encourages you to write a certain way um, because you can, and like you, you could make money if you wrote like the perfect memoir uh, or the, the best, you know, selling novel or something like that mm -hmm. i don't know i think <laughs> overall i don't regret going but it is not something that i think um is necessary or or something that you know if somebody asked me should they go i would be like you don't need it don't you know don't waste the time don't waste the money it's um i learned a lot about poetry you know but i also think that i could do that with the right amount of like energy you know i could read whatever i could read what i the thing is is that like uh most of the stuff that i really feel like drawn to that i read during that time was stuff that i like found on my own mm. so maybe maybe i wouldn't have found it if i wasn't reading something shitty that my professor said you should read but you know maybe i would have found those things anyway if i was just like i want to read about poetry from 82 or i want to read a novel by a poet that you know was weird something like that mm -hmm. i feel like that those it's all accessible i think right yeah it, it's not um here are the books that only people in mfa programs can read like we've kept these away from the population and there's no unfortunately i think there's no um occult knowledge being being hidden away um probably in, a, in any degree program um i mean i certainly yes. would trust an engineer who went to college 
more than one who just watched an awful lot of YouTube, but, um, yeah. And I, and I think too, that like, there's a lot of people who are much better read than I am who did not, you know, go to uh, school for their, for writing. Like, I mean, Troy James Weaver is probably like one of the guys who's like read more than anything, anyone that I've ever met. I, you know, talk to him and he will like know not only like this book but every book that that person read and then like persons that that person wrote with it like during their time and like you know fiction and poetry and stuff like that i mean like and that he just isn't like a guy who's interested in books and has always been interested in books and so he knows about about them and he knows about them because he read and i don't think that don't teach you can't teach that i think you you know what people talk about with mfas is that you gain gain connections but uh i did a really great job of like burning bridges by uh not liking anybody when i was in my program Mm. and being kind of like a jerk uh at at various times because i thought people were uh, i don't know annoying like with my stuff or or, you know be like this sucks or this is insincere or something like that um so i don't know i mean i have my my girlfriend i met her in 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 grad school and my friend eli saw him he's a really good writer one of my best friends and i met him there and i i think those are like very important relationships but it's not like we talk about that stuff too much right i like that perspective i i think the thing that i appreciate most about talking to other writers and probably would appreciate the most about an MFA program is just being able to sit down and and work through something verbally that I had a hard time with Mm -hmm. right like I mean there there are some books that I've read um that kind of wish I had had someone to talk to about it while I was reading it or at least immediately after like if I had somebody who knew about Beckett while I was trying to stumble my way through his some of his novels like I feel like I probably would have benefited from them more um and so to have I don't even know a dozen people plus someone who's been teaching the same material for however many years all be working on the same thing at the same time I feel like that would be useful um but that's like just from a reader standpoint. Like I don't necessarily know if I'd be a better writer now if I understood Beckett in 2018 when I read Beckett in 2018. Like I have no idea. Um, yeah. The thing, another thing about that is, is that in any like workshop, uh, you know, you only maybe care about like two people's opinions, and then the rest you just kind of have to like listen to. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I mean, I think that's the way. So, I mean, maybe especially in an MFA when like uh, it feels like if you don't say something, you're not like participating enough or you don't get it. So you read a poem, like you read a piece and then everybody has to say something to it's like not only say that they get it, but to say that they're participating by getting it. And then also like giving their opinion about it, which might not help you, you know, like mm-hmm. you only, you know, like you, you I'm sure have people who you care about who you could send them something who know your voice and you would say this works for you and i see what you're doing and i get that and like it's it's difficult to find that anywhere but i think that like when you also tack in like this 
weird setting where everybody's like trying to prove themselves. Uh, you get somebody saying like, okay, well, Joe, what if tired was actually uh, energized? What if we've changed it to energized? <laughs> we talk a lot about tiredness, but you know, maybe I just think that like, you know, maybe we could have a little bit more like, maybe there's a, there, maybe there's, maybe that the entire thing is tired. Maybe just a chapter of it's energized. Like, <laughs> all right, let me write that, pretend to write that down. Yeah. I'm, those are the people who end up as like movie producers, right? Where it's like, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Star Wars, I got it. But what if, <laughs> what if we have Furbies in them in the movie and we just call them Porgs? Like, what if, I feel like that would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what toy can we put into your novel that then, you know, when it becomes a movie, uh, we can market? Yeah. I think there's, there's, there's children who want in on this story too. We're leaving them out off the table if we don't put in some kind of toy. Oh, man. It, it, I guess I guess for Tired, it would just be stone crucifixes, wouldn't it? It, it would just be... <laughs> Just, just steal a whole bunch of crucifixes out of some like Christian store in a strip mall, and uh, and then sell them, drop ship them. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, uh, to that point, I'm quite glad that you have a vegan recipe for liver mush in the back of the book because I very much intend to make it. Uh, one of the things I think that you were quite successful at. Uh, in in this book is making me want to eat liver mush um, and you know my wife likes to know what I'm reading and what it's about and stuff so I explained it to her and she she uh, does not want to eat liver mush I, I don't think even not being uh, in her third trimester would make her want to eat liver mush so the vegan recipe is very useful and um, I, I intend to try it uh, I'm interested to, well, I guess you kind of say that like in, in the epilogue that like you want to make sure that everybody has access to liver mush. So here's, here's a recipe. Um, but I, I just found it to be quite a good touch. Yeah. 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 I, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I think that that, that was, uh, the main idea. And then also that like, there's a handful of things that I could point to and say that it's like this or mm-hmm. it's like that, but that um, those things are still maybe not exactly right, you know, like, or not, you, you know, you're never going to, unless you go to that specific area, you probably aren't going to find it. Um, and so I guess uh, it kind of playful. I also wanted to make sure that I could do it like, like I like I say in the recipe, like I've I've never really written a recipe. I like cooking. I like making food and stuff like that. But I don't really uh, ever like communicate that to somebody when I'm talking about food. Usually, it's about like if I'm telling you about like a thing I ate that I really liked. I'm talking about like the, the flavor profile, and then maybe if it's something weird, I would relate it to something else. Like mm. it's maybe a little bit more understandable. So. Uh, uh, it was a challenge, a personal challenge to like try to write the recipe. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, I like that idea. Like, I think that like, just thinking that it's, it's a turnoff because a lot of people don't eat, not only don't want to eat something that has the word liver in it, but also don't eat meat in general, even if they were open to the idea, it would be like, well, this isn't for me. 
there's maybe some kind of inherent violence in writing about uh, you know meat that is you know, processed meat or something or or something that is like so inherently tied to meat industry or something. So like trying to like maybe tackle on a uh, I don't know uh, an apology at the end. <laughs> that says, hey, look, it's not not that you can also enjoy this even if you don't uh, take the souls of other living right uh, yeah i especially i mean i'll eat, eat pork but of the meats i probably have a hard the hardest time eating pork um because in sociology class we had to watch that that pita video about factory farms and listening to a pig die makes you not want to eat pig um, yeah yeah i also read it as a sort of playful lampooning of the way that recipes are written especially on the internet where you're like scrolling past a 10,000 word essay about something you know yeah yeah uh and i understand the purpose of something like that in in a cookbook or in a cooking blog right to like sort of tie an emotion to a dish that people might not necessarily have an emotional connection to especially with comfort food that like you would want to set the stage for the eating of this food. Um, and I don't know if that was your intention, but it made me think about it a lot, especially just like interrupting yourself, uh, which is another tactic uh, that, that I see a, a decent amount these days that I really enjoy. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't, I, I guess that, when I was writing it, I wasn't necessarily thinking about that, but then I, it did just become that. So like when I do think about it, it's like, it does kind of read like those internet uh, recipe essays where it is front loaded with a bunch of stuff about like, I mean, yeah. And it's kind of the, almost the exact same thing of just being like, and now when I first ate this, it was from my my grandma made it and she would, you know, always tell me this story and, so it is kind of doing the exact same thing, but I, uh, I don't know. I guess I was trying to make it so it was like more fun or whatever. Mm -hmm. Funner than that, you know. As as I started writing it, uh, and um, I really, but I really like the idea of of, and I kind of talked about it like in the recipe. I think where uh, if you eat a bag of chips, like. At like while like while waiting for the recipe to to set do the bag of chips become part of the recipe and like mm -hmm. uh, like the idea of thinking about uh, just a straightforward recipe that would include like you're gonna need um, a subscription to this podcast and you're gonna need a, a two bags of chips and dip but the recipe is not about that it's so that you eat the bag of chips while you're making it and watch and listen to the podcast while you're doing it and all that kind of stuff so that it becomes like an interactive experience and, mm. and like, i don't know like the idea of like controlling what you do uh through the through the recipe is very funny to me uh, so that like the experience is not just the end result but the process too right no uh, i i like that that makes me think about like um, pre-modern medicine that's sort of like magical in nature where they're like make sure you say these words over the wound while you're putting the, the the herbs on it or whatever because you don't know 
is it because I'm saying the words? Like, it worked when I said the words last time, so I guess I'd just better tell everybody to say the words over it. Uh, yeah. I, I like that idea of, of making a recipe an entire ritual process of, like, yeah, like, you better have a Bud Light with you while you're grilling or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. I also found it funny that it's like halfway through the recipe that you're like, oh yeah, you're going to have to put this in the fridge for six hours, just so you know. <laughs> I hope you're not hungry right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you just forget it. I like, yeah, forgot <laughs> that part of it while writing it. <laughs> and didn't, yeah, didn't include uh, prep time uh, in the beginning. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I also thought that was fun to say that you could go back and read the book six times if you wanted to or something mm -hmm. like that um i've never been really interested in, in recipes like that i think that with the internet when i when i do look up a recipe it's because um i want an idea about like what goes in it like i think that i'm unless it's crazy i'm adept enough to know that if you tell me this has this spice these spices or these like vegetables or whatever i can kind of age how much to do you know mm -hmm. it's more more about like what the flavor is that i'm looking for so like uh, i what i will do is look up like three or four recipes and then pick out the things that it sound like what's closest to what i have and what i want to try i don't I hate i hate how much there is like front matter to a lot of recipes but i am reading uh currently reading kitchen confidential the anthony bourdain book mm -hmm. and uh he talks about uh He'll, he'll like talk about chefs that he like worked with or or knew and will like say the, this book this this chef wrote this crazy book and it's really good and and like that means a cookbook and um and uh but he doesn't talk about them in like in terms of like how good the recipes are he talks about what they are about because mm -hmm. they're typically it's like an underlying narrative to why uh a, a chef writes a cookbook and so that makes more sense to me that a person who is interested in uh, food would maybe want this story behind it and would be more interested in that. Where like, I'm going to read through this and not use it as a reference book. I'm going to use it as like uh, a way to learn more about this chef and this type of cuisine and this story behind the cuisine or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and it made me want to like look into like books like that because I've, I always think of them through the context of, well, why would I need a cookbook? I have the internet. Right. And, you know, why, you know if I look on the internet, I'm not reading any of that stuff, so I don't care about that stuff. Yeah. I, um, I've seen every season of Top Chef because my wife likes it. Uh, and I suppose 16 years into it, I like it now too. But um, that's one of the, the big reoccurring criticisms that the judges use with the chefs is like we want to eat your food and know who you are uh yeah. you know show us who you are is something that they say all the time and as a person who who i mean i can follow a recipe and i can tell when food's burning and uh, you know and i can kind of you know i know how much paprika versus chili powder to put in a dish or something like that but um i have a hard time imagining you know, getting to know somebody by eating their food. So it's nice to know that there's like, you know, a higher level to cooking, to to being a chef, that there is um, something like very intimate about it. Um, 
it's nice to know that it's there even if i can't access it yeah i think that like i was i was talking to uh caitlin recently uh about maybe personal skill of mine with talking about food when i first started dating her uh almost five years ago she was vegetarian <laughs> and didn't eat uh she like, maybe ate chicken sometimes uh but it was relatively picky with what she ate even if it was vegetarian like the vegetarian thing was maybe more of a picky thing than it was like an ethical thing but it was kind of tied together and uh we started dating and i would talk about food that i liked that's what i do and um and like through that we like i like got her to try like burgers and like steak and eventually liver mush and all this other stuff and um there's part of that that maybe is a little bad. Like maybe there's, uh, you know, like this one less vegetarian in the world that maybe isn't good. But then there's also part of that where like when we were talking about it, she was like, the reason that I trusted you more than I've trusted like anybody else who obviously has said the exact same thing or close to the same thing. If you meet somebody who's vegetarian, like there's always the people who say, oh, you don't like burgers? Oh, you don't like a big juicy hunk of steak? You know, like they don't, they, they're not good at, uh, explaining why it's good or, or like talking to somebody talking about why that specifically is good. And like, she's, I, I like to talk about the, the, the reason why a burger is good and like why the meat with the cheese and like the other stuff on top of it, why the bun is great. Why like a piece of ribeye is, is very, very good. And like what it tastes like that you're maybe familiar with. And I think that's how I talk about food, but I, it made me feel like, uh, a certain amount of pride in my ability to tell stories is, uh, you know, rather than maybe uh, my uh, pride to uh, convince somebody to go against their uh, their ethics. It made me feel good to, for for her to frame it that way. Uh, I don't know. That's that's how I think about it. Yeah, uh, there there was a. Um... A, a running series of articles that Sarah Gerard did for Hazlitt back in the day. I don't remember what years. Um, but it was about her um, dealing with dealing with anorexia. Um, and so it was a lot of food writing kind of as a way of enjoying food. Um, and also just like good nonfiction, creative nonfiction writing and stuff. And her book Binary Star is about anorexia and um veganarchism uh that introduced some interesting ideas to my brain um but yeah I, I food writing i think is is um just very interesting um i enjoy i don't know i guess because the sort of general way that you teach people to write is to to show don't tell and um taste kind of often gets left out because it's sort of a passive sense that like you're not actively always tasting things right like like asking a an, an anxious person what their teeth taste like is always a, a surefire way of, of getting a rise out of them yeah. um so it's cool when we focus on that because you kind of get like a synesthesia sort of thing going on or at least it's just a lot of senses kind of combined together it also occurs to me that this book is just one of those uh 
it could it could be jokingly or cynically seen as one of those internet articles where it's a hundred pages of of preamble before a before a, a, recipe. a recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do like that idea. <laughs> I think that's, that like... I think that's funny that that accidentally came into my brain while we were talking. Um, <laughs> Finally, you're here. You're here. <laughs> something I I. I I'm always curious about with people too is how they edit, especially the epilogue because of like the interrupting yourself. Like on the second, third, fourth, fifth read through, I'm interested like how that gets crafted into like a very intentional sort of thing. If at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, so I tried to, I tried to structure it, uh, tried to structure the book based on uh, a, a loose narrative of what was happening while I was writing this stuff. So uh, not having a job to having a job, mm. kind of coming, uh, finding, finding the, um, the, the stories about like home and things in, in that, you know, uh, that like if I'm, I'm talking about this thing to myself, then having new people in my life because I have this job trying to like, well, this is all I've been talking about. I guess I have to relate to them in this way. Um, and then, uh, the, the, so that kind of fell into place that way. Then the editing process of that with like interrupting or whatever, like, I guess that would come from that, 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 uh, yeah, came, I mean, came through from like maybe rereads and, and like seeing things where I could like tie in other jokes uh, or, or tie in like callbacks to other things or places where um, maybe a poem didn't end ended on like a an image or, or ended itself in a way that 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 would have been a fine ending but you know it could do more or less the same thing and then also call something back so like uh, one of the poems uh, I for Let's see. I think it's the one that's uh, about yeah at the at the warehouse in New Jersey where it's about like uh, putting like what the process of what my job was of like putting things into boxes and then sending them off to North Carolina and and then the ending being like I hope this T-shirt cures your depression like I think the original ending of that was like I hope you know, whatever you bought makes you happy mm. which is the same. I mean, that would be, have been okay, you know, but it, I think that it, it is more or less the same thought as the other one. And like, why not put that in there? Like, why not call back these things or, or, or a lot of it too was like, uh, Zach would, would, you know, edited it and would go through and say like, you know, there's no, you know, liver mush in this. There's not enough liver mush in this. <laughs> Where, where, where can we like kind of move out from this specific moment to like the bigger moment and, and things like that. So like, uh, the bigger moment being both the, the book, you know, liver mush. And then also, uh, the point of the book being like, I'm trying to convince you this is something valuable of your time. Mm -hmm. and, and so like the interrupting then becomes like, are you tired of liver mush yet? Let me tell you why you shouldn't be. Or, or you know, let me at least 
quell your fears that you might think I don't know that this is getting annoying, but I'm also somewhat annoyed by it too, or <laughs> things like that, you know? Right. Um, do you find a, a worry I often have about my own writing is that I feel like it's too, um, too, too influenced by whatever I'm reading at the time. So I always feel like I have to write something really fast before I like finish whatever book I'm done or I'm reading at the time. Um, and, and therefore like editing becomes kind of a problem for me. Um, do, do you find that you have the same sort of thing where like your writing is colored by whatever you're writing? So like, I don't know for you, you can see in a first draft where you finished one book and started another or anything like that. Uh, maybe to a certain degree. Uh, I think that, um, with this, I relate, uh, a lot of it to like Richard Brodigan and, uh, Scott McClanahan and stuff like that. Hmm. I think that, um, but I also, I feel, I feel like maybe there's like a, a part of me that either wants to like lean into it or, or like read more of those things. Like if I am reading something while writing and then it feels to like click in and maybe like influence my writing, then I want to like read more of that stuff by that person and see why, you know, maybe like mm. in that way I have maybe I have more control over the influence. Cause if I am just reading a book while I'm writing and then it feels like I pull something out or I use a phrase that feels maybe like not as much mine, uh, then I can be, I would say like, like I'd be like, Oh, that's not great. That's not mine. I can't do that. But then if I feel that, well, I was drawn enough to it to do that, maybe I could get more, from them and then have like more of a, a conscious reason as to why I was drawn to it or mm. I could put it in there in a, in a way that's like that it's a guide rather than a like in, intrusive thought. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's pretty wise. But I should do that. I'm going to take that advice because I don't know why I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, it makes sense to examine what it is you're being is being like expressed out of you by the experience of, of reading this other work. Yeah. I don't know if it works for everything. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it might, I don't know. I think that if you took that to its logical conclusion, that means that maybe a lot of the, a lot of writing would just be like also a, you know, a study of, mm author or whatever you know? right and that might not be the most interesting thing uh but i don't know i i enjoy doing that the, the thing i'm writing now i was like watching uh these short films by jennifer reader and uh i like them a lot and so i wrote about them into the thing and uh and so that has been fun like re-watching her stuff and trying to like figure out why specifically i liked it and if that means anything, or if it is just a part of the thing that I'm writing about, you know, like if it is just a, am I just interested in it? And then it just becomes like part of the story, or is it also just something that could, you know, I could do, do something. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good pr uh, practice, maybe just in general. I think maybe 
maybe it might be nice to prescribe more of that just in in the general um you know fast pace of of the media culture as it is anyway to uh encourage yourself to kind of sit with something um more and more like i have a bedroom filled of unread books so much so that it feels a kind of kind of wrong to reread something uh mm-hmm. because it's like i am i have i don't know wasted money in the other room waiting to be utilized or or i don't know i'm wasting my time reading a book that i've already read um i don't know so i i like that you're doing that uh as as i don't know i guess it gives me permission to do something like that too right that like you can sit down and really kind of get at why something is clicking with you i mean i I have like I posted on Twitter a long time ago, like a screenshot of my notes app of like movies and TV shows that have that vibe. And I like, can't, I can list them off, but I can't exactly explain what it is. And so I don't know, I guess the most logical thing to do would be to go back and watch them again, Uh, maybe all close together and try to really suss out what that is. Yeah. I think also like, um, like I like, I like, writing obviously and i like reading and i i like engaging with art or whatever <laughs> but i think it also like the older i get the the more it's the the same like the initial spark that i felt when i read like the book that like turned me on or whatever mm-hmm. uh, i get that less and less and it's I, I don't mean that in like a negative way i think it just is like the more you read the more you are like aware of what's going on and so like you just it just it takes a little bit more work to to get there mm. and so when something does feel like to me like oh i like that a lot that's cool or that's new or like oh, i haven't like had a thing that like really did that for me in a long a long time i like you know like why not like why not like check it out more and see what else uh that that person has that would make me you know feel that again or or or, or e- even in a cynical way, uh, be able to categorize it in my brain so that I can say now in the future, when I read something, I say, they're doing this, that mm-hmm. person is like that. Cause I read that, that person's you know, books. Uh, but yeah, I think it's like, yeah, just going toward the brightest light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I feel like I've talked about it on this show before, but just I, there there is an anxiety that I'm not like well read enough. So I, I do this thing where I kind of like cycle through, like I'll read a classic and then I'll read something like nonfiction and then I'll try to read like four things that were published this year by our ecosystem of people because I also feel like like maybe maybe this is just a uh, like a social anxiety thing like i feel like everybody instead of feeling like everybody's going to a party i'm not invited to i feel like everybody's reading the one indie book that i haven't read yet um yeah, yes uh, so i don't know maybe it's just me like i think being too hard on myself yeah i mean i think that there's it's also like uh it's also like a conversation just like 
halt anytime you haven't read anything, which really sucks. Like I think that like uh, just in general, as a person who talks about books, if somebody brings up a book you haven't read and you're just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that one. And I think that that is a, a big bummer unless that person can maybe like engage you and like bring you in and we can tell you something about the book. Um, uh, but, but I do feel the way that you're talking about where I also feel like I haven't read enough that there is more that I, I, I could be doing. And I think that I also do what you're doing too, where I read a lot of different things and I try to like my, my two read, read books are not all like from one person. They're all, all over the place and they're all from different time periods and they're all going to check off certain boxes that I feel are, are, you know, fair in my uh, repertoire or whatever. But I also think that like from my own experience and from talking to people that like, yeah, reading a lot, like, or maybe even the saying it's like, it's rather better, better, better to read deep than to read wide. Mm. You might only have read, you know, I don't know, one person, but you've read everything that that person did. You maybe have like a better understanding of writing than if you read a, a bunch of stuff, but only read like one book by everybody. And, and so, or like, you know, I don't know, you know, like whoever, you know, I think that you might, the individual might learn more from reading somebody's entire body of work than from reading everything that came out in like one year. Yeah. I mean, certainly people are writing PhD dissertations on like the work of one person and not necessarily, you know, the entirety of every book that was published in the eighties or something like that. The other thing I wanted to make sure that, that I, I got to was to ask you about your, your work with X-ray. Um, I've, I find the, I don't know the the particular job of being a curator in this space to be fascinating as well yeah i so when i started i mean i i'm, I'm mostly uh just an editor i read submissions they're not sent directly to me they're just kind of like submissions that are uh um assigned to various readers. It's a pretty good bit of readers on X-Ray. When I first started, there was like a big call uh, for like people to send stuff directly to me. And I think I read about like 60 or so pieces and um, selected maybe 10. Um, but uh, I think, uh, I don't know. It is, it, it is sometimes, uh, difficult or annoying work i think that like uh i enjoy finding like a piece by somebody who i've never heard of that like really seems good and that like i i feel like by saying this is great this is something we should publish that's that's a a, a rare feeling because you know like a lot of people have a voice already or have a, a an avenue for publishing so it's it's rare to find somebody who has this like voice and style that maybe hasn't been published yet or not published enough or not on x-ray so that's exciting and i i enjoy that uh that is where i feel most amount of, of maybe like pride and um uh, whatever 
<laughs> like I'm doing my duty whenever I, that happens. Uh, uh, and then like, yeah, I, I also like edit a, a lot of those things. So a lot of the stuff, if I do feel very strongly about it, it's typically is, comes to me for me to like edit it or work with the author for a little bit to clean it up. Uh, and that is also typically fun. You know, I think that it's, 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 it's fun to like find a place where I think, yeah, in, in, in fiction a lot, it's, it's interesting where, uh, you can see what somebody is going for, but it's not exactly there. Or like this moment in the story is maybe not exactly there. It doesn't necessarily take away from uh, the the overall thing, but with like just little tweaks, you can get it there. And that's like, I don't know, that's very fun. That just feels like uh, like solving some kind of problem where you know, just see like it's a little blurry and then you can tinker with it a little bit and be able to clearly see what's going on. Um, I like that. This is called Bambi Wants to Eat What We're Eating. Story about my cat. She stands on her back paws and uses her front paw to pull a piece of liver mush off our plate onto the floor. She just stares at it. She licks it and shakes her head. She shakes her head like she does when something hurts her nose. Like liver mush, it's carbonation or a piece of lime or a pepper seed. She carries the piece of liver mush in her teeth for two seconds and drops it. She sits and stares harder at the chewed liver mush on the carpet. The liver mush is broken now. The part that hurt her nose is out in the open air. Liver mush smells like the kitchen and Kay and me in her mouth, and it hurts her nose. She thinks, this is food if I make it food. All I have to do is be determined, and it will be food. All I have to do is chew through the hurt, and it will be food. But so when something is on their plates, it's food. When something hurts their noses, they keep eating because they're the biggest animals I've ever seen. I want what's on their plates because I want to be big like them. I want to be the biggest animal. But Bambi doesn't like the liver mush. She doesn't like it enough to make it food. She stares at the piece she pulled onto the carpet until it no longer smells like anything. Until the heat leaves and it becomes a type of lint. Bambi stands on her back paws again, and uses her front paw again to pull more of the same liver mush onto the carpet, next to the old piece of now cold liver mush. The same thought runs through her head. How the hell do I eat this shit? I want her to like it as much as she wants to like it. I want her to be the biggest animal I've ever seen. I want her to fill this tiny apartment and crush us with her soft white belly. I want her to protect us when we're sick and feeble. I want her to bring home the mush, and provide the mush, and feed us the mush. But she doesn't like it. Bambi, please give it a chance. Bambi, join our team. We could rule the world. Bambi, what don't you like? Bambi, how can I change your mind? Bambi, have I failed you or have you failed me? Bambi. <laughs>